Please remain standing as you are able for the reading of God's word. The text for this morning is from Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 24. The text will be on the screen as I read. After Abram returned from defeating Kedorlaomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Aner, Eshkol, and Mamor. Let them have their share. This is God's word. Please be seated. All right, church, kids are being dismissed for Children's Church. A reminder to parents to pick them up right before right after you take communion. Um, right before we take communion and after the sermon today, we'll be able to uh, commission a new leader at Trinity. What's up, Emmanuel? Good to see you, man. Uh, and uh, so looking forward to commissioning a new deacon right after the, the sermon. Uh, so there's a little something different than going right to the communion as a reminder of the parents that are heading out. If you're new here, we're going through the book of Genesis. That's the sermon series that we're right in the middle of. And this will uh, take us right uh, to Memorial Weekend is when we'll wrap up the book of Genesis. As Donnie mentioned, uh, today's the last day to uh, register for the retreat. Uh, for those of you that are lingering back or are not able to go, uh, just a reminder that our service will be at the retreat, so we won't have a service here in St. Paul. So if you're lingering back, it's also just a great uh, Sunday to experience something that we emphasize a lot here at Trinity, that we're not the only church, uh, not only in town, but in the globe that's doing God's work and doing some amazing things. So it's a great Sunday if you're lingering around, lingering around to just go and check out another denomination, maybe another church, a partner church, and see what God is doing in these other local assemblies in our city. Uh, let's go ahead and pray and dive into the text for today, uh, diving into Genesis uh, 13 to 14. Let's pray. Our Lord and King, we approach you today as sometimes weary and fatigued saints, souls that are being tossed all about in our week and in our days by the worries and the cares of this world. And now we find ourselves in this sanctuary, this place of peace, in, in your midst to hear your word, to be comforted by it, to be reminded about all the things that you offer that are better ways and, and, and are stronger to support us in our days and, and, and strong enough to give us forgiveness and grace because of the blood of Jesus Christ. May we see Christ today as our great King, the King of righteousness and the King of peace, as our great advocate who never stops speaking on our behalf. May the Holy Spirit stir us up to see Jesus is truly better and stronger than anything we will face in our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Every once in a while, 
I enjoy flexing with my lame dad humor on folks that are in my midst. And I was reminded of a story uh, this week when I was preparing for the sermon about this time that I went to Valley Fair with my family. And there's this specific ride at Valley Fair called Delirious. If you know this ride, it looks like a big purple circle. It's this roller coaster that just loops around the circle and then and, and you end up upside down and then right side up and then upside down again and you go right around in the circle. And the way that they structure this ride, it's in groups of four and you have two people facing two other people, so you're looking at the person right in front of you while you're going on this ride. Well, my group of four included this uh, little girl that was right across from me looking at me in my eyeballs, and I could tell that she loved this ride. She, she had went on it multiple times. I saw her. She was doing one of those things where she'd get off the ride, and there wasn't a long line, so she went right back on and went on it again. Uh, very brave soul. Uh, I didn't have her confidence in that moment. Uh, I feel like the older I get, the more I'm thinking, like, why am I doing this to myself? Like, why... Why am I paying all this money just to be scared and sick? Like, it just starts to get kind of confusing. Uh, but one of the things I did uh, there is just strike up some conversation with her, and I started asking her some questions to show off my lame dad humor. I said, hey, did you survive the last time? And she's just like, what are you, I'm here? Yes, of course I survived. You know, just the look on her face, like, what is this guy? Why, why is he talking to me? Asked, did he... Did she puke on this ride in one of her previous times? And she's just like rolling her eyes. And I asked if she would be embarrassed on this ride if I started screaming louder than her. And I was just like, I was just laying it out there, just trying to get, get things going, trying to impress her with my, my dad-like abilities uh, as, as I'm just laying out this lame dad humor. And the dad, I was sitting next to another dad, and he could tell what I was doing, so he joined the competition. So he starts dishing it out as well because she, he was just enjoying this just very extravagant eye rolls that we were getting from this little girl as we were asking her questions and telling dad jokes and that sort of thing. And then right before the ride started, she looked at us both and informed us of this truth. She goes... My dad is weirder than you two. <laughs> she just totally employed a lesser to greater argument to me. She, she wasn't phased by our lame dad humor because she had a dad that was better at it, she informed us. That's why she was completely unimpressed because she was exposed to some dad humor that was very much more sophisticated than the stuff that she was experiencing on this ride. Now, in a much more sophisticated, theological, and deep way, this argument from lesser to greater that I just gave you an example of is something that the Bible often employs, being unimpressed by something because it's lesser than the greater thing that you know or you've been exposed to. So the Bible keeps uh, exhorting believers to make sure you follow the better way to God's promises. Make sure you're building your life on a better advocate in heaven, a better authority over all things. Make note of when something may be good, the Bible will tell us, but not better than what is offered in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Like this little girl uh, at the ride, when she uh, implemented this argument, the lesser to the greater, that's what we're going to see a couple times in the passage today to exhort us to remember what is better and what is greater. And we'll see that in a couple different ways. In one section, we'll see that there's a better way of following God, even if the other way looks more beautiful and more appealing. And we'll also see 
uh, a way to look up to heaven to a better Lord and a better advocate who is there, one who is both a king and a priest. So let's start in chapter 13. Let me summarize a little bit what's going on now in chapter 13. Last week we were introduced to this man named Abram, his wife Sarai. They're called by God to be a new covenant people that are going to be blessed by God and then also become a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. Last week he was leaving Egypt uh, as a migrant family uh, that's very much in this kind of vulnerable position. But right away in chapter 13, we see that he's starting to grow in wealth and power. In addition, somebody else in his household, his nephew named Lot, is also growing in wealth and power. So much so that this land that they're traveling through cannot support both of them. And it's creating tension between Abraham and Lot. Uh, if this land were a kitchen, there would be too many cooks in it. So what happens is there's this, this dispute that erupts between Abram or Abraham and his nephew. And Abram says this as a solution, verses 8 through 9. So Abram said to Lot, Let us not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I will go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. So Abram offers a solution of peace with his nephew. Lot can pick first. He can pick the portion of land, and then Abram will go in the opposite direction. So here Lot has a choice. And let's see how he chooses, verses 10 through 13. Lot looked around and saw the whole plain of Jordan to Azor was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out toward the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. So this is what happened. Lot looks around, and he picks the side of the land that looks great. The land is described as being beautiful, well-watered, like Eden. It's given these analogies. We remember Eden. It's like it's lush and beautiful like Eden. It's like, it's like the area of Egypt where the Nile is, where like even a famine and a drought can't bust that water down. Like it's just this beautiful, lush place, and that's what he picked. So on the surface, it looks like a good decision. But then we start getting some details that maybe it's not a good decision. One of the hints we get is the direction he moves. He moves east, and if you've been following the book of Genesis, moving east symbolizes moving away from God. Moving east out of Eden, for example, was an example of that. That moving east is a way of representing that you're moving away from the Lord. In addition, the location of the land is on the either border or maybe right outside the promised land. And we even get these details about this city we're introduced to, Sodom, which is where Lot now lives just outside of this city. And it's a place that God will eventually destroy because, as verse 13 says, the people of Sodom were so wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. So now it tells you a little bit about the direction that Lot is moving, both physically but also spiritually in his soul. Abram is moving, however, in a different direction. He's moving in the, into the promised land and closer to the Lord. Look at verses 14 through 17. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had parted from him, Look around from where you are to the north and the south and the east and the west. 
All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your, foot, your offspring would be, could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. These are promises that are continuing to be reaffirmed to Abram and getting like more real and specific. The Lord tells Abram to look around because everything he sees with his eyes is something that he and his descendants will get not just for a short time, but forever. And the Lord emphasizes that Abraham or Abram will have so many descendants that nobody's going to be able to count them, just like it's impossible to count the grains of sand on a beach. And so chapter 13 ends with Lot moving away from the Lord and his promises while Abram is moving towards them. And before we get to chapter 14, it's good to pause and think of that image, that that illustration that is here for us right in this text. And there's a principle at work here that's good for us to remember as people of God. And the principle is this, not everything that looks good means it's a blessing and moving us towards the Lord. That's a principle that we should have in our minds in life. Just like you can see a beautiful plant in nature and it can turn out to be poisonous, so too things in life can look great but actually are not moving you towards the Lord and his love. In making life's important decisions, think about important decisions, like you're choosing maybe a relationship, a new relationship, you're thinking about career, uh, what what to do with your time, important decisions that you have to make. And sometimes those decisions on the surface can look beautiful. They can look good. They can have this appearance that it's going to give you the good life. But the principle from this text is that that isn't necessarily going to be the case. And you could ask, well, how can I tell if something looks good but it's bad for me? And one of the things that we see in this story, and you can ask when making these decisions, is this. Is this decision moving you towards God or away from him? Not does it look good, but what direction is my life starting to go to? Is it going away from God or towards him? Is it going towards his love for me and to fulfill and apply the commands to love God and to love others? Or is it moving me away from that way of life? Because we must remember that God's love and his salvation are better than anything else that this world can offer, no matter how appealing it may look to our eyes or our imagination. It's an important principle, isn't it, brothers and sisters? Because we often choose to build our lives on things that look good, but it is not the solid ground of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now we see a a, a similar argument that's starting to be um, implemented in this narrative, but in a more uh, complex way. It's one of those passages, and especially this character that we're about to meet, that is uh, made to be a big deal in the New Testament. And it's one of those things that maybe you've read a portion of the New Testament before, and you're like, how do New Testament authors read the Old Testament? And this is a great example of how that goes down. So let's set the stage for chapter 14. Verses 1 through 12 of the chapter, we are introduced to a bunch of, lo- uh, bunch of kings, 
and uh, the locations that they're coming from, and they're in conflict with one another. And you're picturing all these kings that are from the east and some kings that are from the west, and they're going to battle. And it's important at this stage in history not to think about kings of like these big nations, but these kings in this context are more like governors or mayors of towns that are kind of going to battle against each other. And so you have a bunch of them grouping together, the east and the west kings, and they're going to war. And the text details that there's two rounds of battles that happen, and each time the eastern kings beat the western kings. And these eastern kings also carry off some people as a result of this war, including a person named Lot, who, as you remember, is the nephew of Abram. And then you get to chapter 14, verses 13 through 16, where Abram hears what happened to Lot, and so he forms an alliance with some other kings and leaders, recruits about 318 people, and goes after these eastern kings to get Lot back. And, and again, like it's this battle where it's, it's a little bit more, less like a, like a battle line and like a traditional like Netflix epic film where they're just, they're just kind of firing at one another or charging at one another. This, this battle would have been more like a raid where Abram and his, and his men uh, would have surrounded them in a camp, probably secretly, and then, and then they would have won a battle and then these kings would have ran away and then Abram and his crew would have chased them kind of picking them apart as they were retreating. And that's what happened. And over time, Abram and his uh, small group of guys beat these eastern kings. And it shows you in a little, little illustrative way just how uh, Abram's power is starting to grow from being this kind of vulnerable migrant family to one that could take out these eastern kings that just won two battles against the western kings. But the big thing that the text wants us to know is that, that Abram gets Lot back, and not only Lot, but all the things that these Western kings would have lost in these battles. All right? And so then we get to be introduced to a couple different kings. And let's first start with this king of Sodom before we get introduced to the other king. Let's skip ahead uh, to verses 21 through 24 rather than going in order. Look at verses 21 to 24. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or a strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich." I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and that share that belongs to the men who went with, with me. So here we're introduced to the king of Sodom. This is the guy that lost the battle, and he lost his people and all these goods during the war with these kings. So he approaches Abram with a proposal, and he just gets right to business. There's no thank you. There's no, hey, pal, you really did me a solid here because I lost and you won. There's none of that. He just gets right to, like, hey, we've got to think about what we're going to do with all these things. And the king of Sodom's proposal is, give me back my people, but you can keep all the goods and the treasures, the riches, whatever you picked up in this battle, you can keep those things. And Abram, by custom of this ancient culture, would have been entitled to those things. But he responds by making it clear that he wants none of these things. And, and the reason why he makes it clear that he doesn't want the king of Sodom to get any credit 
for his growing influence, his growing wealth, his growing blessing. He does not want Sodom to get back credit, king of Sodom, but rather he wants to make it clear that the only reason that Abram is growing in this way in his household is because of God and God alone. Now here's what's fascinating. If the story could end right here, it makes sense. It's a nice, tight story. The characters make sense. Everybody we're introduced to, like this is a great story. But right before these verses that I just read to you, there's a different king that shows up, and it's just a weird uh, character that comes onto the scene that doesn't really make sense of the text. And this is the king of Salem. Let's get introduced to him. Melchizedek is his name, verses 18 through 20. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So who is this guy? Who is this king? Well, we know nothing about him. There's no background. There's no uh, family line of his descendants uh, that's in, in implemented. We, don't, we have no background on this guy. And if you remember the book of Genesis, there's a lot of family trees in it. Like it makes liberal uses of, of like where people come from. And we have no idea where this guy came from. He just shows up unannounced to this party of Genesis 14, like even though it seems like nobody invited him. Like how, why is this guy here? All we know about this king are the details in these verses, and that's it. What are some of those details? Well, we find out his name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. We learn that he's a king of a city named Salem, which means peace. And we don't know this for certain, scholars who study this for a living, but it's highly likely that this is over a, a town or a city that would be known later as Jerusalem that he's king of Salem or Jerusalem, which would be, as you know, the holy city uh, in the promised land where God's temple would be built uh, later in the Old Testament. We find out also that he's not only a king, he's also a what? He holds also the office as priest. He's a priest and a king. And he's not a priest of some polytheistic religion. We see that he is rather priest of a monotheistic religion, that he's, the, he's a priest in the faith of God Most High, which is a phrase that Abram also uses about Yahweh, his Lord and his God. Now, the priesthood in Old Testament history comes a little bit later. Later, Abram will have a descendant named Levi who becomes the father of, of, of the tribe of Levi. And from this tribe, God will call people from that tribe to be a priesthood for his people. This priesthood is often called the Levitical priesthood, and they were responsible for things like keeping things going and occupied and, and, and operating in the temple. They would offer sacrifices there. They would communicate about God's will even to kings and those in power, and they would serve as mediators, advocates between God and the people, especially giving instruction about how we should live righteously before the Lord. In Israel, uh, the office of priest and the office of king that will come later are distinct offices that aren't to be mixed together. But here we're introduced to this curious character named Melchizedek who holds both offices. 
This king and priest of righteousness and peace brings bread and wine, which would be welcome gifts to these soldiers who are likely tired, thirsty, and hungry from battle. And then Melchizedek blesses Abram, recognizes in Abram's life, and his victory came from God Most High, the creator of everything. That's who delivered Abram and his people and his men. And that it was God's promise to Abraham that caused this to happen. Then Abraham or Abram responds to Melchizedek by offering him a tenth of all the spoils of this war. Remember, he didn't want to give Sodom anything, the king of Sodom anything, but he offers this Melchizedek some of those riches. So Abram, in that gesture, is recognizing the importance of this king and this priest by offering this gift. This great father Abraham that we know of in the Old Testament, who's about to become the father of God's people and implementing God's plan of blessing the nations, he is recognizing this person as someone who's greater than him. Abraham is a big deal. And if Abraham is a big deal, how much bigger of a deal is this Melchizedek guy? But then, like that, he's gone. We don't hear about him anymore in the book of Genesis, In the following books after Genesis, we get one more verse about Melchizedek in the entire Old Testament. He doesn't show up again until the Psalms where David writes one verse about him in Psalm 110. And that's it. But then he shows up in the New Testament and they make a big deal out of this guy. Now before I chase that thread though, I need you to hang with me here because we're we're doing some heavy lifting. Like all those details that I just gave you about this guy Melchizedek is going to matter significantly when we move briefly to Psalm 110 and to the book of Hebrews, all right? At this point, I know some of you might be thinking, like, I can't get too excited about this guy, Melchizedek. I'm supposed to get excited about Melchizedek and, like, all these themes. This is going to be some hard exegesis, but let me convince you to keep paying attention, okay? And I'll do this by a a really strange illustration, but I think it it shows, like, there's some really cool themes that are about to be put, put together with this guy. Uh, There's a New Testament professor that I took in seminary. His name is D.A. Carson. And he wrote a message, delivered a message that I I listened to and I used a little bit as research for this uh, sermon. But the message was called Getting Excited About Melchizedek. And what's so funny to me, that that cracks me up that he wrote a message called that because I I remember this guy, I sat in this class. This is not a guy that got excited about much. All right, he was... Uh, he was a hard-working professor. He was, he was very, very intelligent, uh, and, and he but was like fairly intense. Like People would be very intimidated by this professor and didn't really necessarily like taking his classes because of it. Uh, students affectionately, like myself too, would call him the Don. It wasn't Don Carson. We would just call him the Don uh, because he's kind of like this evangelical godfather that he wouldn't, you know, take your life, but he could kill your grade, okay? That's, that's kind of the power he had in our life. So he writes this message about getting excited about Melchizedek, and I'm like, man, if he got excited about this, this is a big deal. Because I even have a memory in his class once where he, he just gave me, like, 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 lasers out of his eyes. He was so mad at me because uh, it was just, like, one of those moments that, you know, it was back when I had a flip phone, and uh, it was one of those exciting times where you could use a, a distinct ring for a person. So I picked a distinct ring for my wife uh, that, so I could know that it was her uh, uh, calling me. I won't say, give you all the details of the song, but I'll let you know that it was an old song that Justin Timberlake wrote when he was trying to bring something back. <laughs> Do you know that song? 
All right? So anyway, I forgot to turn my phone off. The song goes off. The ringtone goes off. And he looks at me like he's about to fail me forever, right? <laughs> Not only in that class, but maybe even in heaven, right? He was just just intense, and he's just like, do we need to have a liturgical moment where we all shut off our phones before class? And he was just, he was really mad. Um, so if this professor, if the Don gets excited about Melchizedek, I'm just saying, maybe we should too, all right? So let's try to see how some of these threads are, are put together in Psalm 118, and especially in the book of Hebrews, because Melchizedek is going to be this figure that points beyond himself, especially to Jesus the Christ. So Psalm 110, it's the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. And it's a psalm about the greatest, it's a psalm that's written by the greatest king of Israel, King David. It opens with this verse, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now it's significant that David wrote that because David is a king. David is a Lord, but he says in that verse, to the Lord, all caps, meaning Yahweh, his God, that makes sense, you address God as Lord, but then God is speaking to a different Lord, which isn't King David, but one of King David's Lord. Not only the Lord God, but this other person sitting at the right hand of God that King David is addressing as Lord. Who is this individual? Well, it's clear that this individual and other psalms speak of him as the Messiah, this anointed one, this, God, this, this person that God is going to choose that will one day carry out all of God's victory and bring ultimate peace to God's people and this world. And then later in the psalm, Melchizedek shows up again in verse 4. David writes, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And then that's it. That's all that Melchizedek comes up in the Old Testament. But here in this psalm, the, uh, King David is saying that this Messiah will not only be this king that brings victory on behalf of God, but he will also be a what? He's going to be a priest. And again, if you remember what I said before, this is significant because in Israel, you don't mix the two offices together. In fact, David's predecessor, Saul, who was king before him, tried it once and the Lord said, knock it off. You can't be both king and priest. But here, David is writing about a time that God will raise up somebody who is both. This Christ, this Messiah, who will be both king and priest. And in D.A. Carson's um, message about Melchizedek, he brought up this really good kind of way of thinking about probably what's happening here. Because it's just like, how did this guy get on David's radar to even write this psalm about him? Because if you remember, David can't be a priest, but he is a singer-songwriter, right? So he writes all these psalms, right? And here he's just like, why would you write a lyric about this random dude in the Old Testament? And most likely what happened is, like many of you, we have access to the scriptures. We can read it whenever we want. King David was probably one of the few people that actually could take out a scroll, right, a manuscript of the book of Genesis and read it for his devotional time. Likely that day he was reading Genesis 14, and it was introduced or reintroduced to this guy, Melchizedek, that he's king and priest, and he's probably thinking in his head, that doesn't happen to us. Uh, Levitical priesthood, they can't be kings. We kings can't join that priesthood. But here's a time in the history of God's people where this 
this figure comes on the scene that had both offices together, and he's probably thinking as he's writing the lyrics to the song, I wonder if we will ever have another king priest again. Not one from our existing priesthood, but somebody different that comes from somewhere else. Now, as I've been saying, Melchizedek never shows up again until the New Testament, and then he is made into a big deal in the book of Hebrews. So let's go there now. Hebrews 7, 1 through 3. And based on all the work we've already done in, in the book of Genesis, these verses and this summary should make a lot of sense to you. Let's look at these verses. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham, returning from the defeat of the kings, and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever." You see the argument he's starting to structure together. These are things that we know from the background of the story that we just read. He makes these claims that we know from the text, Genesis 14, that this Melchizedek is the king of righteousness and he's the king of peace. We also know that there was no genealogy. We don't know where this guy came from. There's no account of his birth, his descendants, his parents, his grandparents, and there's no account from him about him dying. And then the author is using this, this, this uh, story about Melchizedek and these images as a type that points to, forward to Jesus Christ and saying that just as we don't know where this king came from nor where he went, so too the Son of Man has no beginning and no end. He's eternal and therefore is a king or priest together with us, or a king and a priest with us and over us forever and ever and ever. The author of Hebrews will go on uh, to make a couple more points in verses 4 through 10. But in order to really understand these verses before I read them, let me set them up for you in a couple different ways. First thing to know is that the author is dealing with these groups of religious people who read the entire Old Testament through this lens of, if I just obey God's law, then he will be pleased with me. And they would read likely everything about the Old Testament through that lens, and they would point to this priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, the order of priests, that these are the people that preserved this law and gave us these marching orders. And then what they did is they built their life on the assumption that there's nothing greater than what this priesthood has given us, and there will be nothing greater that will ever come. So that's one thing to keep in mind. The second thing to keep in mind before I read these verses is that the author of Hebrews, just like that example I gave in the, new, uh, in the, in the, uh, in the introduction of a sermon, is about to employ the argument from lesser to greater. He's already made this argument about Jesus previously in the book of Hebrews, about Jesus being greater than angels, and that he's greater than Moses, and so on. And now he's about to do the same here by showing that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, uh, and because Melchizedek is a type of Christ, he points to the Messiah's greatness. All right, now let me read these verses. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi, who become priests, to collect a tenth from the people, that is, their fellow Israelites, even though they also are descended from Abraham. This man, again referring to Melchizedek, however, did not trace his descendant from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him 
who had the promises. And without a doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. What is the argument that was just employed right there, right? All right, I'm preparing you to understand it a little bit, so let me try to summarize what the author of Hebrews was just trying to say. Because remember, he's dealing with these people. Levitical priesthood is a big deal. Building my life around that, all right? And he says, he's about to show that, no, there is something better. So he says, yes, Levitical priests, they collect tithes from their people, right? Religious, this religious institution had offerings and gifts, and they collected them. But so did this priest, this king named Melchizedek. He collected a tenth from who? The father of Israel. The one that, that, that was the one that get, was the one that had the promises that, that what was uh, what would lead to the people of Israel. He gives Melchizedek ten percent. He also says that Abraham, he's he's great, he's the father of us, but here you have Melchizedek blessing Abraham. And then he says that argument, because the lesser is blessed by the greater. Melchizedek must be greater than Abraham. And the third thing he says is that since Abraham represents his descendants, including the Levitical priesthood, then one might say, he says, that the priests themselves are paying respect to Melchizedek through Father Abraham, that even they, too, are not as great as this person, Melchizedek. Abraham's not as great as him. The priesthood is not as great as him. And this guy, Melchizedek, he was just a person who pointed beyond himself to even someone greater than him, and that is Jesus Christ, who is the true and better king and priest. I'm going to conclude with him drawing out these implications pastorally in verses 25 through 28. So he says, Therefore, Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weaknesses, but the oath which came after the law appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. Jesus is better than any priest and any king, even Melchizedek. Why? It says here, because all other priests, they die. They can't be your forever advocate. Their voice will stop advocating for you, but Jesus lives forever, and his voice will never stop advocating for you. All other priests, he says, they're sinners who need to offer a sacrifice for their own sins, but Jesus is the sinless and righteous one who laid down his life for us sinners and for the forgiveness of our sins. In other words, we have to stop. If we're anything like these, this audience in the book of Hebrews that's being addressed by these words, we have to stop putting our hope in earthly efforts and earthly people when there is something better. Why choose to build your life and, and your purpose and your meaning around something that is not as great 
as Jesus Christ. With Jesus, you have someone who will never die, never fail, and never stop having your back. That's who Jesus is. He is, a, he is better than any way that looks good that, but takes you away from him and his gospel and his way of life. He's better than all those ways, even if it looks good on the surface. Christ is the true and better way. He offers us a life not built on the sand of mortal men, but on an everlasting rock who is Christ himself. There is no sacrifice that you or others can offer to God that will be better than the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Any other advocate that you can imagine in your life will eventually lose their voice, but Christ will never stop speaking on your behalf because he can never die. He is the resurrected life who lives forever and ever and ever. Every other person, brothers and sisters, will fail you and will fail to stand up for you someday, even against your greatest enemies. But Christ will never fail you, and he stood up to your greatest enemies of sin and death in your place, and he won. Because Jesus Christ is the better way. He's the better sacrifice. He's the better advocate. He is the true and better priestly king of righteousness and peace. And you can build your life on that. Amen, brothers and sisters? Amen. All right, we did some heavy lifting. You guys did good. You paid attention. That was good. We had strong coffee, strong Holy Spirit. We learned about Melchizedek. Man, you guys are a great congregation. That was fun.